You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Today let's read from Luke 13. Not a pleasant passage, but one which the Lord taught us important lessons of how to view the world. I think it's one of both faith and humility. We need more of both of those. Let's read Luke 13, 1 through 5. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners or worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. These words of Jesus don't sound like very good news. But actually in them can be great news if you'll do what he says. Repent before you perish. Uh, Let's look at this. The idea, uh, the the truth that we just uh, see in the world, the truth that we know by experience, that there are tragedies. And what's the first and most sure word we can say about tragedies? They happen. They just do. Sometimes we recall incidents in our life where uh, there was a close call. It was a near thing that the tragedy nearly came to us. Or there was a time in our life when tragedy came. A time in the life of our near ones and our dear ones in which tragedy befell them. There are those we read about in the newspaper. I suppose the news media wouldn't have half of its uh, things to do and things to talk about if some tragedy didn't befall somebody somewhere sometime. And these are morally significant issues. That's why they're brought up to Jesus. Now, that's not to say that everything that was brought up to Jesus was a morally significant issue. Think about the time the fellow comes up and says, interrupting the teaching, Jesus, tell my brother to give me half of my inheritance. And Jesus said, who made me the judge of that? But here they bring up tragedy. And Jesus doesn't send them on their way and say, stop asking me about those trifling things. He said instead, everybody learn. Everybody learn something. And so we start with Galileans. Horrible case. uh, From what few words are here, moral horror is about the only thing I think we should have if we knew the more of the facts. Pilate did so many terrible things in a land where so many people did so many terrible things that this is not recorded to history. We do not know what incident is being referred to, but we can think that it must have been relatively recent, right? For one, it's Pilate, and he'd only been uh, the governor there uh, for, I think, eight or nine years. So this is something that happened uh, within recent memory and probably, probably pretty soon to the asking But history doesn't record it, but they're Galileans. 
Pilate did not rule Galilee. Pilate was governor of Jerusalem. And so he killed Galileans who were in his territory. His territory, basically Jerusalem and its surrounding environs. And their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. So travelers from Galilee came to Jerusalem to worship. Travelers came bringing sacrifices and they didn't get to the temple. They got killed in some way, some reason, some way crossed up with Pilate. I don't know, maybe he thought that was a party of insurrection. Maybe he thought they were somebody else. Every now and again we hear these stories of a drone strike that hit this gathering of people in some far off village on the other side of the world and we're always told it was a wedding party. I assume that sometimes it is. But I assume every time the military hits something, what do the locals say? There's just a bunch of people, peaceful people at a wedding. That's why we're all there with their guns to shoot up in the air to celebrate. I don't know. Maybe Pilate had intelligence that these were some of the worst hooligans that ever existed. Maybe Pilate got the wrong people. Maybe Pilate got the right people, but when he sent his soldiers out there to confront them, they bowed up on them and they drew their swords and you draw your swords on the soldiers and what happens? You don't know what will happen. It might not be good. But these people on their way to sacrifice. So they hadn't been sacrificing for a while because they lived in Galilee. They hadn't had time to sacrifice for a while. They're on their way to sacrifice. They're on their way to worship. And I don't know, and you don't know if they were revolutionaries or not, or what uh, was behind this, but we know what their end was. They died. And they their blood, instead of the sacrifices having their blood shed and that blood sprinkled, it was the blood of the people that was shed. When we think about these horrible situations, people always ask us, yeah, what about the guy who dies on the way to the baptistry? You ever heard of that actually happening? Here's, a, here's an equivalent case of the Old Testament system happening. People dying on the way to worship. What about that, Jesus? Jesus says something about it. He says, these weren't worse than the rest. The Jews, if we look through the way they approach things often in the New Testament times, and we know about other Jewish writings, the Jews seem to have the idea, if it went well with you, you were blessed. If it went well with you, you were cursed. Now, they did have a general covenant to that agreement with the nation, right? What happens if Israel's faithful to God in the land? It'll all go well. What if they don't? They'll be punished. Well, they, they had atomized that down to the individual level and basically said, the rich guy must be more blessed of God than the poor guy. Now, Jesus turned that on its ear in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Because if that story uh, happened the way they thought it should, then the rich man should have been the most blessed man of God. And Lazarus, the most cursed of God. But as a matter of fact, as soon as they die, what do you find? It was exactly the opposite. So these guys are not worse sinners than everybody else. And what about those people on whom the tire of Siloam fell? Eighteen of them died in a day. That's terrible. Was God punishing them? Was God punishing the hubris of the people to build such a tower? And he had it collapsing upon them? No, I don't. Doesn't seem to be. It's not that Samson was down there in the basement pulling on the foundations, right, to, to get the Philistines. I mean, sometimes when, like for instance, if a judge of God pulls down the foundations of the building and pulls it on top of you, yeah, that's a judgment of God. But in this case, what was the judgment? Was it on one of the 18? Was it on all the 18? Was there anybody who just happened to be standing by the guy who was being judged when it fell? Was it the builder who was at fault? 
Was there an earthquake that day? And so we'd call it an act of God? We don't know. We do know that there's sin and suffering in the world all the time and all over because of the general result and effect of sin in the world and fallen humanity. And there's physical damage to things that happens. But were these worse culprits, Jesus asked, than all the rest of Jerusalem? That's the worst ones in Jerusalem. That's why God got them. That kind of thinking, these must be the worst ones. You know, all those people coming down from Galilee, all those other parties that made it safe, they must have been okay. They must not have been as bad as these guys. But what we find is that kind of shortcut answer that it's just punishment. And usually it's punishment on people that we don't like or people for doing things we don't like. That is just a shortcut answer. It's not a thoughtful answer. It's also one that leads to pride because if that hadn't happened to me yet, I must be doing okay. Right? I mean, bad things happen to Doug because he's Doug. Right? But it doesn't happen, it hadn't happened to Jay yet. Jay must be doing okay. Better than Doug. I'm still blessed of God with health, so whatever I've got, and life, and whatever I've got, and prosperity, and Doug doesn't have that. Jay's obviously doing better than Doug. Again, apply that to the rich man and Lazarus and see how far that gets. And so, it's not wrong to think about this as punishment, I don't think. It's not wrong to think about this as God's actions, I don't think. But it is a shortcut answer to think, well, that must be the worst, or this is automatically a direct punishment, and often will provide the rationale for it being punished because God is getting them for what they did. And so sometimes we'll have some of these so-called Christian leaders often embarrass us all by making some sure pronouncement that some bad thing was obviously God's punishment on those people for name that Christian's favorite sin. This is part of the shortcut. We always think those guys are being punished because they do the thing that we're telling them not to. And so when we had uh, the 9-11 thing happen, and Pat Robertson famously got on TV and said it was God's judgment against America because of our toleration of homosexuality. Well, Pat Robertson was always on his TV show talking about homosexuality. And so when some bad thing happened, what did he do? He connected to what he was always against with that which uh, uh, he, he sees as a bad thing, and God got those people because of this. I've seen some with this COVID, and i got to say, if this isn't judgment of God to some degree in some ways, I don't know what is, but then we have people who also then supply the answers for us. People who don't like megachurches. I've heard some of them say, this is God's way of shutting down these super big megachurches that are ungodly and unsustainable, and this is showing it. So it's, it's a mega churches by the folks. Uh, another said, uh, who, this is really stressing schools and universities to a high degree. This guy who's, by the way, a homeschooler. He said that, uh, this was God's judgment on schools. Others have said it's God's judgment on the entertainment industry because they, they had to shut down, you know, for eight or nine months. Well, it turns out the people who said it's this, that, or the other thing, guess what they were always against? Guess what was always stuck in their craw? Guess what they always were preaching on? Those things. And when something comes, which I think we should reasonably think about, as judgment, what do they say? Well, it happened to them because of that sin I've always been talking about. See? God shows I'm right. 
And that's the danger of this shortcut type punishment thinking. Now again, it's not just Christians who do this. A few years back, there was a massive and terrible earthquake and tsunami in the Indian Ocean. Day after Christmas, year 2004, 300,000 people died in a day. One of the worst modern mass tragedies, right? What's around the Indian Ocean? There weren't a lot of Christians around it. There was a whole lot of Muslims and a whole lot of Hindus. Guess what the Muslims blamed it on? It was God's punishment to hit particularly those resorts which Europeans, Northern Europeans, at Christmas time would often go down to these Indian Ocean resorts. And if you lived in Northern Europe in the middle of winter, you'd want to go to the Indian Ocean too. But when they get to these resorts, how do they act? Well, there's all kinds of sexual immorality. There's all kinds of drunkenness. There's all kinds of things that the local Muslims hate. i got to say, not completely without point, right? And so they said this was God's judgment on these people for that. And that's why it happened the day after Christmas, by the way. It was God's judgment. Clear, well, Allah's judgment on them. And then the Hindus said, because when this thing also hit India, and there were some local Hindus who had lots of problems with the Indian government and some things the Indian government was doing, and the local Hindus all said it was God's judgment against the Indian government for what they were doing. Now, might it be that God was punishing a lot of things all at once? Multiple, possible. But see, this is the thing about shortcut thinking, and this is the danger of it. It's, it takes a tragedy that happens to somebody else, and people use it to reinforce the idea that they're righteous and those other people are not. And that is, that is the real danger of shortcut thinking. Partly because it's not always punishment. It's not always punishment. But I gotta say, from our perspective, it sure would look like it. What did Job's friends think about what befell him? If you are Job's friends, could there be a more obvious set of indications that Job is being punished of God? Could, is there any possible way in their view of the moral universe and most people's view of the moral universe that what happened to Job could be anything but a punishment? And so we, we check the box. Job punished, right? Now we have to figure out, and this is, this is what so much of the book of Job is. The, the figuring out part is not that he's punished, but the figuring out is why he's punished. But they're off on a fool's errand the whole time because what's he being punished for? Nothing. He's not being punished. And so we run into these things. Or John chapter 9. Famously, John 9. As they passed by Jesus and the apostles, they saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him and said, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents? So it's obviously punishment. But the apostles being, you know, the thinking people often, not always, but often during the ministry of Christ, the thinking people are trying to figure out what punishment is it? The parents or this guy? Because if this guy is born blind, then how can he, was he punished before he sinned? God knowing he would sin? Or did he sin before he was born? Or did did his parents sin so they were punished with this uh, son that they had to take care of and who turned into a beggar? And with all the shame and all the heartache that went with that, and tried to raise a handicapped kid in the ancient world. Was it the parents who did wrong? The son seems to bear the brunt, but it sure doesn't seem like maybe he, he didn't seem to have opportunity to sin. 
Jesus said it was neither this man that sinned nor his parents. It's not a punishment issue. As it turns out, it's in order that the works of God may be displayed in him. What is God preparing to do? When we see the ramp up of a thing, when we see a thing beginning, and we don't see the end, how do we know what God's doing with that? But if the setup to a thing involves things that are not pleasant, will it look like punishment? Well, then how do we sort it out the time? Maybe, maybe we're not meant to. The only way we'll know it's a punishment, for absolute certain, the only way with gospel truth certainty to know a thing is a punishment is if the gospel says so. If inspiration says it's a punishment, that's a punishment. I can go with that without any reservation. And so it seems that, you know, not every individual sufferer is being punished, but the Bible certainly tells us of those that are. Cain, his banishment was punishment from God. The universal flood of Genesis 6, that's punishment from God. We have prophets telling us so. Matthew 24, Jesus himself is telling us about the punishment that will come on the Jewish society for all the sins of the fathers, all the way down to and including and capped by the rejection of the Messiah and the intentional murder of God's greatest prophet and God's only begotten son. They killed their Messiah. God gave them 40 years to repent or get out. But Matthew 24 tells us that he brought the hammer. And Jerusalem's never been the same since. Through all the things that Jerusalem suffered before they did that, it always got rebuilt, right? But not, not the, the, the Jerusalem we have since is a shadow of what it was before and ever will remain. And there'll never be a temple put back. That's not God's will or plan. Or the book of Revelation, where bowls of wrath are poured out from heaven. It comes in the forms of earthquake and pestilence and invasion and all kinds of problems, but it's bowls of wrath. And so, yes, we can know it is punishment. And sometimes on these big ones, well, it seems like, well, yeah, of course it is. Well, of course it is because we've been told. Of course, the big flood, the, the big flood of the whole world, obviously punishment. But in the book of Judges, in Judges 5, there's this story of Deborah and Barak and Sisera and there was a rainstorm on a mountain far away and the water flowed down through a valley in the desert many miles away and it caused the enemies of God, it caused their chariots to get stuck in the mud. And what do you call a chariot stuck in the mud in a battle? You call it a target. And God's people wiped out those stationary ter- chariots because they couldn't run and turn and they couldn't mow the people down. They themselves got mowed down. And you find out that local flood was part of a judgment. How would you have known that? And so all through the scriptures, all through the scriptures, the disappearance of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, people are still fascinated by that story. They keep trying to find archaeological evidence of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think it's probably buried under the shallow end of the Dead Sea at the bottom. But they think maybe there was some meteor now. And there's getting to be a reasonable hypothesis of what actually destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah Uh, came via a strike of a meteor not far from the Dead Sea. Well, it would fit the biblical description of fire and brimstone raining down. But just because a meteor strikes, and if that was the tool God used for that, it seems like it might have been, 
how do we know when that's a judgment and how do we know when that's that's not? And so all through the scripture, how do you know when it's a judgment and how do you know when it's not? Because some things look an awful lot alike from the ground. Well, you know if inspiration clearly tells you so. But, and I'll go out on a limb here, not expecting any prophetic visions today to explain current events uh, in this way that they're explained to the old times, how do I decide today, how do I come to any firm understanding today about God's punishments or whether they're not just, they're not worse and it wasn't a direct punishment? How do I do that now without the benefit of an ongoing revelation? What do I do? Well, first I take what the scriptures does clearly say, that God still rules, right? God still rules. So Daniel 2 and 21, and this is a passage that has helped us as we went through the last election, as it helped us as we went through the election prior, and God willing, it'll help us in the election that comes next. Daniel 2, 21, it is he who changes times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Who's in charge of the times of nations? Acts 17, 6. Nations of earth. Who determines their appointed times? The boundaries of their habitations. God does. God does. And so whoever got to be a, to be a king or a president or a prime minister or whatever position of authority, whoever got that to the, there, it was, it was to the surprise of God. I don't think any ever got to be in charge by the surprise of God. We've seen, and, and I like studying history, and there are the, the rise of some people, the occupation of, of, of certain territory by various people, uh, the, the, the fall of various tribes and nations. I gotta say, in, in all in all, it sure looks highly improbable. So unlikely that that would occur. Who would have saw that coming? I mean, I'm surprised reading history books at things that happened. Right? And they're in the history book. But I didn't know it. It's surprising to me. But which of these things ever did surprise God? And so I can go to sleep at, bed, to, at night uh, securely and as soundly as possible. Being surprised because the one who is overall has never been surprised. Not by the big things and neither by the small. Matthew 10.29 are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the Father. And so there are so many things that in hindsight seem so self-evidently uh, providential and God's care. And, and I, I think, how could anyone have missed it? Obviously that is the work of God. I could not be more firm in my conviction that that is the work of God. And yet another believer, seeing the same thing, maybe just as firm in their conviction, that it, yeah, it was a work of God, but for a different reason or a different purpose. And so without inspiration, we know that God rules. And though we may have very strong and firm convictions of the thing, and what, what believer, a thinking believer, doesn't have convictions based on what they think God is doing and how God is caring who of us does not firm convict, firm, firm uh, form firm convictions? All of us. 
What do we think about a Christian who doesn't form any firm convictions about things? But what do you really believe then, brother? But we also recognize that our firm convictions on the truth of God are not the same thing all the time as the truth of God. Right? We may well miss that what God was doing a bit. We think God is doing, but we, we, we miss exactly how or why him, uh, that he's doing. And another brother may not have. Or another brother may have missed it a slightly different way. We can still be faithful in all our actions as we go, but we don't make pronouncements about what God did or how God did it. I think about Abraham when he sacrificed Isaac. He sacrificed Isaac firmly convinced that what? I will sacrifice him and God will raise him from the dead. He had that much faith in the power of God to act and to do good. And God said, sacrifice him, so I'm going to sacrifice him and God will raise him from the dead. Now, is that what happened? That's not what happened. What happened? God stopped the sacrifice. God provided instead another sacrifice. And Isaac continued on alive as one who was sacrificed. Yet the reality of the, of the act did not get completed. And God did not raise him from the dead, though he certainly could have. Abraham was not wrong about God's ability. But Abraham acted exactly right. Now, what if on the way up to the mountaintop, let's say that Abraham had gone with several. Uh, I know he, he went with just him and his son. But what if, what if Abraham had gone with the party, say like Job's friends, and they discussed along the way what God was going to do. One, aside from Isaac fleeing in terror. But, but what, how, might, how might that a discussion, how might the discussion of how this is going to go, what would that have sounded like? Well, thankfully, <laughs> we don't have that. But that's, that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in discussions and thoughts about how this is going and how this is going to go before it's gone. Or we find after it's gone, uh, trying to make sense of it all. And yes, we have and we should make firm convictions and think about and contemplate how God is doing and working in our life and how it is that passages like all things are working uh, for the good of those that love him uh, from Romans 8. We need to think about how that works. And we we need to thank God for that working in our lives. But as we have these contemplations, We don't make pronouncements about this is what God did because we don't always know. Even the Apostle Paul in the book of Philemon, when he returned Onesimus to him, Onesimus who had run away, been converted and then was returned, Paul said, for perhaps he was for this reason, parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever. What the Apostle Paul there found was good in the in the uh, thing, a good consequence. He found a spiritual benefit. He found a thing that praised God and said, let's consider that maybe God was doing that. I think that is just about the right and perfect way to explain and to think about every bad thing. How is this explainable in a way that is to me uh, reasonable Uh, within the power of God's framework to act, which gives us a lot of action, gives us a lot of power to work with. How is this reasonable? How How can I trust that in this act, God was doing well and good? 
How can I think about this in a way that glorifies God, trusting in his providence? And then I might say, well, perhaps it was for this. And then Doug says, well, you know what? Maybe though, perhaps it was for that. Heretic. It's obviously this. That's how I've thought about it. Well, no. Doug has the right to make his own conviction. It should be within the framework of God's power and God's grace and the things that God is doing to cause things to work together for good. And so let us in every time of difficulty think about that. Perhaps it was for this or perhaps it was for that in a way that glorifies God. But the other thing, and this is what Jesus very directly directs his audience attention to, he said, but no, I tell you, these Galileans, these people the tower fell on, but no, I tell you, and he repeats it twice, verse 3 and verse 5, but no, I tell you, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. And so always take the opportunity in any tragedy as your personal spiritual reminder of your own need to repent. See, that was the problem with that shortcut thinking that we talked about in the early part. When Pat Robertson says the towers are hit by the planes because of the homosexuals in the country, he, Pat Robertson said, this is an opportunity for those people to repent and it's a reminder for them to repent. And the Muslim guy who said this happens to these, these immoral Christians who come to these Muslim areas, and of course they weren't very Christian. Most of those Europeans are vacationing down there in those nude beaches and the like. Not very Christian, but that's how the Muslims saw them. The Muslim said, take this opportunity, you Christians to learn our lesson. And the Hindus said, take this opportunity, government of India, to learn a lesson. And the guy with the, who uses the COVID to talk about the, the schools, take this opportunity, you people in the universities, to learn a lesson. And, you know, I mean, that'll play. Because don't, don't we want governments and people in ivory towers and people in immoral actions, don't we want them to consider their state? And don't we want them to straighten up? And isn't every bad thing an opportunity for them to do that? Well, sure it is. But what did Jesus say? Why don't you take the personal opportunity to see if you need to repent? So when any bad thing happens, when any striking thing happens, when any tragic thing comes along, when anything comes along that is morally significant, and when bad happens, it could have happened to you instead. Take the opportunity to think, wow, if that had been me, and I went and if I went in that, I would have, I'd be a goner. Maybe I should repent. So work it out in a way that gives glory to God. But also work it out and think about it in a way that thinks about my need to repent. When Jay sees these bad things happen, Jay needs to think about Jay's need to repent. When you, audience member, see these things, you need to think about your need and God-given gracious opportunity to repent. So think about it in all of this. How can I give glory to God? And how can I use this as a lesson about my own, not others, my own repentance? Lastly, if we read the next verses following, right after this, he taught them a parable. He taught him a parable about needing to repent. Verse 6, and he began telling this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. 
And he came looking for the fruit on it. Well, yeah, that's it's a fruit tree in the vineyard. That's what you do. You want the fruit. He didn't find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've been coming looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? Now, a couple of years ago, I planted in the front yard over there at the parsonage, I planted a pecan tree. In the, I believe it's five years it's been there now, it's produced A, as in singular, as in one pecan. It was last year, not this year. I thank God for my harvest. I cracked it and I ate it. But I was hoping, after last year getting one pecan, I was hoping this year for some more. But it's still young. It's a juvenile tree. I planted it. It was about as tall as me. Now at the very tip of it, it's almost 12, 13 feet. It's getting there. I have a feeling one day I'm going to have so many pecans that I'll be tired of them. I, I look forward to that day. But it's a little early yet. But imagine if this tree were full-grown and mature, and I came by year by year by year, and there were never any pecans. What eventually would it need to be done with that tree? Get it out of there for one that will put some pecans there. That's why that tree is there. That tree is there for the pecans, and if it doesn't start producing, we'll bring in another one that will, right? But the vineyard keeper says, but Lord, sir, let it, verse 8, let it be there for this year too. I'll dig around it, and I'll fertilize. If it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. And so the vineyard keeper says, Let's give it just a bit more time. Let's give it one last opportunity. Now, Jesus speaking to this generation of people that is going to reject him, their Messiah, and kill him, he's going to give them that opportunity. They had another 40 years, and then that society in 70 AD ceased to exist. They got the cut down, didn't they? Because the fruit wasn't there. What good could be salvaged from it was salvaged from it as they uh, went to Christ. And then when the armies came up by his instruction, they fled and they were scattered and held safe throughout the world. But those who had rejected him and those who stayed under that system, they got the full cut down. Now, as we would apply this personally to us, we're the fig tree now. When the owner of the fig tree comes, will he find it? How? Planted? Certainly. We're here. Our society and our culture, we've been here a while. Is it time and has it been time for a while for us to be producing fruit? Certainly. Us, both individually, collectively, and think about whatever collective version you want, whether that be in our congregation, in our family, in our neighborhoods, in our society, uh, generally in our in our states, in our nation. What are we at each of those levels? What are we as far as fruitfulness? Good fruit? And we say that unequivocally. In my personal life, in my family life, in my church, in my community, in my nation, in my various relationships. Can we say fruitful? Or would we have to say unfruitful? Or would we have to say maybe even worse, bad fruit and then in our various personal and then through this through your various relationships coming to your own conviction are we already fertilized and under extra care kind of on a probationary period 
Or does that need to start? And what are we personally, and then on up through the various relationships, what are we in relation to the master's patience before removal? Because again, the lesson was unless you repent, you will perish. And so don't think about this as what the other guy needs to do. The other people in other relationships need to do. Do what Jesus said. Personalize this. Take this. It's your personal opportunity to consider your need of repentance. Because how good am I at repenting for other people? (laughs) Not good. It's not my power. I have a poor enough record of that for myself. And that's in my power. But we, we... We can't do this for others. We can only do this for ourselves. So have your convictions and firm, form firm convictions about what God's doing. Recognize that we don't know, even though we may have convictions about his goodness and grace. Recognize that it's a personal opportunity every time there's a tragedy, every time there's a reminder of the frailty of life and things of moral significance. And remember that we're being watched for our fruit. And think about in that regard where we might be. Well, that will close. Kind of a sobering lesson, not the happiest lesson. But a clear warning from Jesus to these people, but one which all people of all times can take for application. So as we close then, what fruit needs to be in your life or changed in your life or continued in your life? So come now to him to confess him or to return as we offer the invitations, we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.